On this week's The Koi Gig podcast, we had an exclusive interview with Manchester United's owner Barrier. With those crowds and that pressure, I just love it. Listen now and make sure you subscribe to The Koi Gig podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The Football Show on Off The Ball. With Sky, all the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. This is News Talk. I'm prepared to do anything I can well, to play it my country again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. Now, welcome along Football Show. Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent has graced us with his presence. Daniel, hello. Joe, pleasure to be here. Let's start with some good news for Irish football. You do like a moan when it comes to Irish football. I didn't know what we were going to talk about today, so I'm completely in the dark here about where you're going to go with this. Wouldn't get your hopes up. All but, right, okay. Uh, good That's a good sell, Joe. Good news good to sell. start with. Irish under-17s. Uh, there is a bandwagon leaving the station this Saturday. <sighs> so they lost 5-1 to Poland. And most of us looking on from afar thought, that's okay. You know, they're the youngest team at the championship and not everything in life goes to plan. Uh, Hopefully it doesn't turn into three bad results. Mm. But then 3-0 win against Wales and last night a 4-2 win against Hungary and suddenly they find themselves in a European Championship quarterfinal. They're into the last eight. Most likely against Spain, but most certainly on Saturday. Colin O'Brien called it a very uh, mature performance. Uh, not least given they are the youngest squad at the championships. So this is all very impressive. Much needed good news. It is, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is a funny one, this, because uh, there is always an extreme of reaction to like good results and bad results. You know, uh, like bad is the go, you know, this, this whole national underage league system. I'm not sure if we're as competitive as we used to be. And then, you know, good, it's... Uh, Geez, everything we did, everything we've done in the last five years has been brilliant, you know. And really, the, the truth always lies somewhere in between. Um, I've probably been writing about this today and, and just generally. Um, look, what what our teams are doing at that level and all underage levels is incredibly impressive. And it does sort of pay tribute to the quality of the coaches, uh, both within the FAI set up in the camp um, and also the players sorry, the coaches that work with them all on a daily basis. Um, because I think Colin O'Brien said it, like by no metrics should Ireland be competing at this level. If if you, and of course, you know, we love sport because there's unpredictability with it. Um, but Ireland are actually consistently qualifying for tournaments around this level. And yeah, like our, our football infrastructure is deplorable. Like it's it's horrendous. Like, you know, there was a, you know, there was a UEFA report released last week. I was looking at it. Um, youth facilities landscape or some uh, some term and it was the first time that they'd ever looked at uh, the 55 member nations in UEFA uh, and looked at the top flight clubs in each country and the number just you know, under a variety of headings you know what's the average budget what's the average number of staff you know what's the average number of pitches used and just various things like an audit I suppose in effect um, and again in all these things like you, you just see the Irish flag and we are down there with like the the minnows that if if Ireland draw them in a qualifying tournament, you're talking about well we need to we need to run up a cricket score against these. And in fact, you look at like Baltic nations and Estonia and places like that, and they're actually miles ahead of us in terms of what they're doing at underage in terms of full time employment and staffing. And yet we still expect to compete 
we have an expectation to compete because of our traditional perception of what we are as a football nation at senior level, you know, qualifying for major tournaments and, and, and being in, in the shake-up for playoffs. But we sort of seem to think that we can just potter along. I say we, that's the, 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 like there's a collective group think conclusion. This isn't the opinion of a lot of people at all. But sometimes it's like the royal we sort of feel like, yeah, we'll tune into these competitions. Yeah, Ireland should be going well. Oh, Ireland got hammered by Poland. That's bad. But actually, you strip, strip down the figures and shouldn't be competing with Poland at all and the fact that we are they're massively overperforming um, and so with me it's like yes you celebrate the victory and that's brilliant but on the other hand it's it's maddening you know because there is a sense of there's a lot of potential it shows that at a certain level you know we do have the players you know, to use a phrase that sort of gets, that exists but there comes a point where we have the players to a certain point and other nations generally tend to move ahead of us um, and why is that? I mean, it's and and so like with this, it's it's hugely promising, and some great individuals. And you're always conscious of piling pressure on individuals at a very young age. But there is some great individuals uh, who who you hear great things about. Um, but we're still relying on maybe a lot of luck for a lot of these players to get to the next level, as opposed to thinking, yes, these will now go into our established conveyor belt production line that will that will allow these players to develop on their potential. There is no guarantee that will happen. Okay. So these guys aren't coming home to a well-oiled machine where they'll be nurtured very carefully and methodically? No, like, I mean, there's there's four nations in Europe. I, we've talked about this before, so if I'm, if I'm saying the same stuff again, stop me. But, like, like there's, there's four nations in Europe that have an average of uh, less than one or fewer than one full-time staff member, member per, sorry, centred on youth development at each club, um, per club. And, and Ireland is one of them. I think it's Andorra and San Marino or someone. Like, it's four nations of that, of that ilk. I think Northern Ireland are actually in there too. So there's obviously something about this island's relationship that we outsource all our, all of that. Traditionally, we'll outsource all of that to, to England to do it for us. Um and, you know, we seem to think, you know, and this has been said to me by people involved, like there's volunteer coaches. And we obviously have a culture of volunteerism in sport in this country, in all of our games, you know, and particularly in Gaelic games. And that's absolutely admirable. Um, but I suppose, you know, we're trying to compete in professional football. We're trying to compete with, with other, Euro- other countries around Europe who, who you know, they have full-time staff 24-7 dedicated to development and here um, we have a, a single figure number of people um, who can say that that's their job um, in, involved in our senior clubs so the only option we have like a lot of these players now are 15, 16 years of age um, so the options that exist to them now uh, if they want to to go on and progress like the full time football um, is to be integrated into the first team setup of a League of Ireland club, which is great if you're an early developer and you're advanced enough and you're able to do that. Evan Ferguson was, I mean, it was a rainbow set up at 14, right? Gavin Bazuna was the same, playing first team at 16. They, these people do exist, um, but it won't be for everyone, naturally. Um, or you can you can go to Europe. You can go to, you can do the old Irish trip to England, but instead, and in fact, for example, you know, Matthew Murr from Cork City, he hasn't, actually hasn't been starting in this tournament, but he's joining Hoffenheim in the summer. And, and I'd imagine a couple of others will, will go that route. Um, and while there's a couple of places that, that offer scheme, like Shamrock Rovers of tradition, Transition Year programme, which is great. And um, you'll find that like the, the, the top select players um, you know, will probably go into that environment of full-time football, commas, you know, with, with a first team. Like that's, 
that's going to work for certain people but you're talking about a system that means to be around people your own age in a full-time environment every day in the best facility that that really doesn't exist over in a sustained proper way and these some of these countries that Ireland are beating now that are better than now like Hungary now okay now Hungary have a slightly questionable regime right you know but uh, Orban is fascinated with football and is pumping all his money into football like those kids that Ireland were better than like emphatically better than will now return and, and they'll be completely immersed in football you know, for the next couple of years and they'll have no obvious distractions to that and let's see where we are at 18, 19 and maybe Ireland will stay ahead of them to their credit but there is that sense of thinking what Ireland could be mm. what Ireland could be if they didn't have their hand tied behind their back all of the time So it it's built on uh, you said look certainly a rich tradition and the popularity of the sport here and then also, I wonder, and this is more of a psychological aspect, but the expectation we have ourselves, you know, that's probably uh, factors t- in, you know, it's kind of an, an interesting thing that we just expect ourselves, however much of a rabble, to use a slightly unfair. No, no, I know, I know where you're coming from. However much of a rabble it might be behind the scenes. It's funny, your own expectations in all aspects uh, of your life can be important. And there probably just is that residual expectation that, hang on, we're Ireland. We should be a lot of these countries even if they've got a better system over there yeah I mean like, I mean, a lot of us in our lifetime can remember Ireland being in the quarterfinals of a World Cup or you know being in the last 16 of a World Cup or whatever you know it's these kids don't quite be. have that when you start looking at the dates of birth <laughs> well I know it's like Mason Melia like you know Mason Melia this, this striker for the Patrick's Athletic who again oh, you know you just you, like clearly right we did watch the Irish underage teams in the late 90s we were aware of Damien Duff yeah. earlier we were w- aware of, of the talented players but I remember like there was still an element of Robbie Keane bursting on the scene scoring for Wolves it wasn't quite as in your face you know the, the social media clip of this player wasn't going around the world like you, you type Mason Melia's name into like you know into say a Twitter search or something last night you find football people in Europe watching talking about this kid who's like he's born in what in, I think September 2007 you know, um, so do you think he was shaped by the Stan era? Yeah, like well, he was—he was born. He was—he was born during it. Yeah. He was—he was born around the time Stephen Ireland's uh, grannies perished or didn't. You know, like around that month. So, um, you know, that—that's where we're talking about here. These you are know? traps, children. Like, well, this is like you know, what's your first footballing memory? You're thinking, uh, you know, is it, is it Noel King's caretaker stint in charge? Oh, yeah. You know, taking over. Like that's the, you know that's, but like I was looking at this like Mason Melia. Right, he's a striker. He is he is such a talent, and I've spoken to people at St Pat's about him who, who say this. And like he's already made his debut for Pat's first team. Um, the vibe w- would appear to be that he's not particularly sold on the European route. Now we'll see. That can always change if you get a good offer after the tournament. But that means Mason Melia um, is going to be at home here until 2026. You know, he, he turns 18 in the autumn of 2025. So I suppose. Like, what are we going to do for him now in the next couple of years here? And like, he is already in the Pats first team setup, and I imagine like he's going to be around there. But like, that's you know, so what we got? What have we got? You know, for him to develop? You know, what sort of facilities is he going to be working in day to day, or what sort of environment he's going to be in? And clearly, and the point has to be made. Like, clearly, a lot of these players, like they're an absolute credit to the coaches that they've worked with, either now at the moment or schoolboys on the way up, various schoolboy clubs. A lot of this gets factioned sometimes between where where does the player come from, who owns the player. Um, like clearly, like people here are doing very well. Um, but you, you know, you, Evan Ferguson was—I think he was speaking at the weekend about the benefit he he got from his say the years of sixteen to eighteen at Brighton. 
Um, and what we offer at 16 to 18 here isn't great and I mean this is the thing like I think sometimes like the, you know football looks like it's got the bag on bowl out all the time and that perception is there um, but you, again you look at this way for a port last week you know, and you see the, the, the comparative around you know around Europe of like similar nations you know and there's a, a, a decent percentage of funding and a lot of them like there's state funding there's government funding you know it goes into football youth budgets yeah. education there's a whole piece I see the FBI had um you know, uh, some TDs or senators touring the facilities last night. And they are about to release a plan looking for, for infrastructural support and for money. But, like, I suppose the case is there to be made. Like, you know, you, you see we've had all this stuff at racing recently, um, betting tax and all of that. And actually one of the justifications that will be offered um, is that um, while well, racing is competing with other jurisdictions where there's state funding, you know, football is competing with that as well too, and and it's it's entitled to fight its case, and the team is representative of a New Ireland as well too, which is another fact that we have to. I mean, like you know, you look at the, the profile of that team at the moment; mm. it's actually a really good story behind that. If only we had, I don't know, sixty-five billion coming in and weren't sure how to spend it. Well, I mean, look, part of this as well. Uh, sometimes it's, I can understand it's like, well, here's just football banging the drum looking for money. And it's been said to me and um, by people, I mean, Seth and Johnny had eight on or reared on our, on our podcast last week talking about this. Like, he would make the point that actually football traditionally hasn't been very good at getting its case together to looking for some of this money. You know, that maybe if you presented a more, more coherent argument for support, some of that will be, will actually be forthcoming if you can get your house in order and, and together and present a plan. So, at times, some of the presentations made at Leinster House, or maybe even a complete absence of, of presentations made at Leinster House, have been incredibly damaging next to other sports. Yeah, and other sports are better organised. Like, I think the point will be made, other sports... And look, you know, you have a, a parish system within um, GA that quite naturally works. You know, like, you, I mean, there might be examples elsewhere, but, like, you know, it's very rare you would have, like, three clubs within a mile radius... You know, it's generally a little bit more structured and organised and coherent, where the point would be that sometimes, like, you know, a lot of football clubs, just, you know, there's there's stacks of them in the same constituency, all looking for the same thing, yeah. you know, all um, against the concept of, like, say, shared facilities. And I think with this infrastructure plan, from what I've heard about it so far, um, you know, I think a part of it is going to be trying to break down by geography. Okay, you know, they've, they've effectively done an audit of facilities in all parts of the country, and they say here we have X amount of pitches, here we have Y amount of pitches. You know, and this is what we need. Here's how, you know, the average compares. You know, we have X amount of registered players per capita compared to other countries. Yet we have our facilities. Are, you know, we have less of this. And like this has been going on forever. This debate, and I just feel like at the moment, it's um, there is maybe a little bit of momentum towards changing it because I, I can imagine someone just dipping in and out of this as much as you. You know, you would love everyone to be engaged with this subject. That's just not the way that life works. You know, people dip into yeah. a major tournament, you know, a big event, and and they don't, you know, they're not going to be obsessed with the machinations sort of week to week. Um, but there probably is a time now to try and and get the house in order and realise that actually, I think this is where the results are significant as much as the results, performances, whatever. Like there is potential there. So like, well, can obviously. we try and can we try and do a little bit more with it and not just rely on other people to do it for us. A quick last point with regard to this current squad. Are these players all at League of Ireland clubs? Are some at DDSL clubs and, and uh, more localised clubs? What percentage of them are in first team 
in League of Ireland. Yeah, so 18 out of the 20 are League of Ireland clubs. All the Irish-based players are League of Ireland clubs. There's two... The two who aren't are not born in Ireland. Would that have been the case 10 years ago? No. Is this, this is the, the change to the National this League the change, before yeah. our eyes. This okay. is the change. Now, like 10 years ago, say at this level, you might have had a team where... There'd some, all be a Belvedere well, some and at, Yeah, and some might have been at the UK already, depending yeah. on their age, you know, at their age. You'd, you'd, so you'd these look. are almost the first generation who are League of Ireland through their teenage years. Yeah, we're getting there. Although, like, again, I suppose a few of them, like, quite a few of them, and I think this will continue to be the case, like a lot of them would have been at schoolboy clubs at 9, 10, 11, 12, but... Um, um, there's a mixed, big mixed bag of stories there, um, but yeah, no, they are all. Like, there is no doubt that in the future, like at 15, at, by the age of 14, 15, 16, all the best players in the country will be a League of Ireland club. That's a certainty. How many um, in the first team? First team, you see, Mason Amelia has played for Pats. The goalkeeper has been involved at Waterford. Jason Healy, um, and there's one or two others have been around squads, but they are very young. Like this is the thing, Ireland have more 15 year olds in their squad. And Stephen Finn, um, ex-FBI employee in France, give him credit for this stat. Ireland have more 15-year-olds in their squad than the rest of the nations competing in this tournament combined. Like primarily most kids in this tournament are 16. They're born in 2006. But Ireland have more 2007 players born than the rest of the teams in the competition combined. So like this is a, this is a young team. Um, and the fact that someone like Mason Amelia is already around the St. Pat's first team squad and playing, you know, he's brought off the bench in the last game and not just for like fun, you know. Just slamming to myself. Enough. Imagine telling these guys about Italian 90. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, like, you know, my, my dad is aware of it, you know what I mean? Because it's like Mason Amelia is Clive Clark's nephew. Clive Clark, he would have um, played for. Uh, played for sort of uh, played under Roy Keane. Do you remember Clive Clark had the uh, yeah. the heart episode in the dressing room at one time and quite a um, remarkable Roy Keane comment. But you know, again, another person from a football family, not dissimilar to like Evan Ferguson and mm. Nathan Collins and a lot of these people are have a bit of a football influence with so them. So what's Italian ninety from 08? 18 years. Yeah, 17 years if you're born in 2007. So yeah. Everybody listening, pick your own birth date, subtract 17 years and. God, your knowledge of that football era. Yeah, it's like well, you know, so, well, I'm thinking 1965 for me then. Yeah. The 66 <laughs> World Cup, of course. Well, I mean, we did hear a lot about it. That's it, true. Like, the Euro '96 helped us to gain a lot more knowledge of uh, football. That one blows my mind when you think, um, as a brief um, diversion. But in '96, when they were talking, so I would have been what uh, nine or ten or whatever, and they were talking about '66. Like, but like that's no one remembers that. Yeah, and now when you understand what thirty years ago is, I oh, know it's it is living memory. It is frightening. Yeah, it's totally changed how I remember ninety six and people talking about sixty six. Well, you think about now, like thirty, like nineteen ninety. So the next major tournament, right, twenty twenty four. Yeah, is like you know it's, it's thirty four years on from Italian ninety. So it's like an Italian ninety talking yeah. about nineteen fifty six. Or USA ninety four is the perfect ninety six back to sixty six. Yeah. So like if someone was if Ireland had won USA ninety four, and at the next tournament people were you know mentioning it. I now wouldn't be thinking why would you <laughs> <laughs> yeah but think about it like all those English people that were still going on about 1966 and 1996 were, were well within their rights well within their rights but you know we're still like you know Packy Bonner's birthday I think today naturally the clip goes up yeah, yeah. You know, you had Cascarino on this week yeah very naturally yeah in our mind's eye it's fresh but then like the, the if 20 year olds are sitting around having a chat like, that's true. sometimes it can be a very it can all be a reflection of your own peer group no, that's you, true. you see life through that prism and our experiences if the 20 year olds sitting around going what is, I know what but the, the 10 year old me in 96 has re-evaluated things that's all I'm saying oh yeah you, you, if you only had that perspective I know 10 year old Malloy just 
what he lacked at the time was perspective. Perspective. It was the main really thing did. he lacked. Yeah. yeah. I did, um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, Johnny Sexton put up like a, an Instagram reel and he, it was along the lines of, um, I'd just like to take the opportunity to apologise for all the times my 18-year-old self called 40-year-olds old. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's true. Yeah. But, but what do you like? What do you say if like? I mean, this is the thing. You end up some, sometimes interviewing lads now. You know, like footballers who are like seventeen, eighteen, and it's like the old reference point questions. Like, if, like if you start like when I think when I started off working in the media, quite often it'd be a go-to to an Irish player to talk about. Do you remember '94? Or do you remember if they're a little bit older? Even they might remember Italia '90. I mean, now where do you go? You know, do you remember uh, Euro sixteen? I think yeah, Robbie Brady's goal in Lille, maybe. Yeah, that, that's, that's probably okay. that's probably that's probably the one. You know, Mason Amelia and, and Co were nine then. You know, that's that's a perfectly acceptable. Yeah, it's memory. a good formative and not a bad memory either. That's a good memory. But they might be on their phones during the match or something. They saw so Wes do his thing against Sweden. Yeah, no, that's true. There's some good reference point memories there. There are. Um, we got to take a short break. I want to talk to you about a couple of things going on uh, away from Irish football as well. The football show, as ever, is with thanks to Sky. Back with Dan McDonnell of the Irish Independent. Just one minute. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. You're very welcome back. Dan McDonnell of the Irish Independent is here in studio. So uh, this is the week where Manchester City uh, officially have won the title. Where Newcastle have reached Champions League uh, football it's all just a bit murky. What a strange uh, space, with City more so, I suppose. Um, is it? And the is asterisk hanging over them. It is a strange Oh, sorry, space. because of the charges. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, not in terms of the routine. Romance. Win. I thought you were on about the romance. No, no, yeah, no. Just yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of how it's been greeted, it has prompted, as I suspected it would, much discussion about the 115 charges hanging over them. So it's five and six for City, akin to Liverpool 78 to 84, and Manchester United 95 to 01. Albeit the points total of those two are not even close to what City have managed, even if you adjust uh, for the two points a win in the Liverpool era. So we're seeing a glorious football, and yet um, most of Pep Guardiola's comments post match at the weekend were about the. I mean, sorry, not most of his comments, most of the questions were mm. about the charges. So he was talking about how he will certainly stay on as manager next year. He's contracted to 25. He will certainly stay on as manager until next or into next year. But he was saying he wants a verdict this afternoon or tomorrow as soon as possible, please. He referred on um, Tuesday, yesterday, to this thing taking maybe two years. So he's obviously got some inside information. I mean... The great obvious point to make here is when, and we touched on this with Jonathan Wilson on Monday, when the charges were made and City denied them, a City statement talked about irrefutable evidence. And yet, if it's so irrefutable and they're so confident, why they haven't packaged it up nicely and fired it over to the Premier League to say, you've got this unprecedented investigation into our club completely wrong. Here is the irrefutable evidence now let's just put this away because I'm sure the Premier League would like not to have their champions operating with this huge cloud hanging over them as well and yet City haven't done that and it's such an unsatisfactory space I I, I don't even know how to talk about their win anymore I mean in, in any other yeah. sport Saracens or, or, or you know uh, Tour de France and it is akin to doping of a sort there'd be a real well the handbrake is up here hang on we're not proceeding any further until this thing is sorted out and yet we're in this limbo whereby for the next two years minimum 
we don't know how to talk about this team. It's yeah. It is a mess. And it does seem like there was a month there where maybe focus switched away from it. And then it was more they beat Madrid. It was like, oh yeah, maybe we should start talking about these charges again. You know, this this could be an issue. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's it's. I mean, everyone, everyone. Well, you know, people are generally aware how the legal systems work in a lot of places and countries, and you see it here. You know, big storm around the FAI or what's going to happen, and then just it enters the legal world, and we say this could take years, and and it does. Um, and it's almost like it's it's the hope that with people you know, people's attention spans are a little bit shorter nowadays and sort of like that story when it broke was huge about City and now it's just oh god it's like whirring away in the background like uh, to the point where people are fatigued by it people just come become fatigued by the discussion because there's nothing new to say yeah. even though it's no less important it's like a Brexit thing or a protocol it's like oh the charges yeah I mean this is, can we just get on with our lives here and very few people probably realistically us included have an in-depth understanding of the regulations Manchester City's ledger book and the vagaries at play nobody can have a strong opinion we can look at City and how they've gone about their business from afar and we can look at the UEFA charges which were time barred and then in a few instances not enough evidence but in the main time barred and let's add that City were fined for a lack of cooperation so we can we can look at the big picture and we can decide ourselves which way the wind is blowing but in terms of understanding the minutiae of these charges, what can anyone say, really? And yeah. That's a big part of the problem. But nobody likes the smell and everybody wants it sorted out. And I don't know. Uh, akin to Newcastle, I'd like, do you have a ticker at all times when City are playing their matches under investigation as they uh, score another goal? Well, that's just the question is, like, you know, and it, like we all, right, like in, in all aspects of our of our watching of sport like you sort of you have a conflict with yourself you know what I mean like you, if you start to strip down any sporting endeavour you have or a lot of sporting endeavours you have you have to compromise with something you know like you we can we're talking off air about say the golf whatever at the weekend and it's like well there's a there's a live golfer winning and the Saudi money and the people have the appetite I mean like, like last year say when they when they moved like the, these golfers were all facing questions about human rights abuses and stuff like that but comes around to Sunday none of that's coming up but it lingers it's there for some people it's mm. not for others and we sort of all go well yeah but it's a good tournament wasn't it you know and, and there's an element of that with, with City and to some, re- to some extent and this might sound that but it almost seems irrelevant whether the charges are proven or not in the sense of a lot of people have just decided to roll with it like like the, what I'm saying is the alternative is like some kind of collective protest take place mm. you know people just decide rivals decide to like uh, we we just we we're refusing to fulfil fixtures against this 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 rogue team because we don't know what they stand for. When in reality, of course, at various times in the last decade, they've all sided with City at various times when it suited them. It's a bit like today. Like there's, there's a story about Newcastle shirt sponsorship today. Um, it would appear, um, you know, great commercial acumen. They appear to have uh, a Saudi company appears to have come forward. Um, I mean, how have they done this? You know, clearly, clearly the marketing team. You know, they got together. You know, they, they rang various uh, big businesses in Saudi with a few quid to spend, with a good budget. And they said, listen, maybe we could talk. Would you like to come and work with us? And, and you know, even the coverage of that from people breaking the story is is saying, it would appear this deal is probably within the remit, just about it within the scope of the third party rules, you know. It's like, it, because of course, everyone knows Saudi Arabia is just a hub of independent businesses all existing together underneath. Yes. Uh, one family that, that it's all about free enterprise I'd say they've managed to 
negotiate a good deal on you. It would appear that they've got a decent deal. Yeah, yeah it would. It would appear to be in line with uh, with other deals signed by other clubs in the region. Mm. And this is the whole thing. We can look at the city thing. You step back at it, and there's obviously very specific charges about. I mean, and like again, you know, like manager salaries and and very specific things, right? And if they've left themselves open to that. Yeah, I mean that's obviously daft that they have if that's if that's proven um, but we, we you, like you step back and you look at the ridiculousness of the whole thing and you see various people who have dug into this you know some of these companies that are appearing as sponsors what is what is their origin what is their background where do they come from and it's like yeah I mean there's a bit more than a smell of the whole thing and again maybe everything's absolute there's nothing nothing can't cast aspersions on some of these other sponsorship deals that Newcastle will do um, maybe it's all just perfectly normal business Well, but on, it's playing the game oh, for sure so to Newcastle exhibit B in the argument that football regulation is um, being made a mockery of on a routine basis I don't know if you heard um, the news agents podcast uh, looked into just even the takeover with Adam I, I've, it's one of those stories I must admit it's existed in the background but I haven't heard the, the discussion on it there's great detail and it's just an insight into not just to be fair because we hold football to an impossible standard in some respects not how football works but just how the world works which is almost the most dispiriting aspect of the whole thing so if you, it's this is about government involvement UK government involvement in the takeover which was scuppered initially but then a key point to jump in on is when Theresa May was Prime Minister heady days for us all uh, 2018 uh, Theresa May and uh, Saudi Arabia negotiated a deal which was I think called the British Saudi Arabian Strategic Council but in effect this was a 65 billion dollar trade agreement over the course of a decade with the PIF pledging 30 billion pounds of investment into Britain between 2018 and 2028 30 billion is no joke and so, you know, the reporting at the time of the attempted takeover part two was that MBS was texting Boris Johnson. Boris, of course, has denied government had any role in the takeover. We did not interfere at all. That is not how we do our business here, said Boris. And so there's been a Freedom of Information Act. And there are emails now between the Foreign Office in the UK and the British Embassy over in Saudi Arabia in 2020. And the emails were to the extent that the Newcastle takeover is the immediate risk to the relationship between Britain and Saudi Arabia. Is the immediate risk. And so, you know, 30 billion is 30 billion, everyone. Yeah. Let's just proceed and see what can be done here. Um, And so uh, fast forward and now the PIF own 80% of Newcastle and there is 30 billion, much needed 30 billion going into the UK. And, you know, like... That's not to mention the the farce of the situation that I mentioned to uh, Kieran Kelly, who was on from the Newcastle Chronicle last night, whereby on the one hand, uh, the powers that be at Newcastle are saying to the Premier League, you have absolute assurances this is not state controlled. It's not. And the Premier League, uh, with great rigour, accept these assurances. And then in a courtroom in California where live golf are saying... You can't uh, look at these documents as part of discovery. Uh, the Newcastle chairman, Yasser El Rumayan, by the way, um, involved in both. You know, he's a sitting member of the Saudi government. Uh, he's, th- we're not talking about normal third parties here. You're infringing on the sovereignty yeah. of the state. Uh, you know, this is not Dan McDonald you're talking about. This is the Saudi government. Mm. 
You just like you're looking in for the fur at the whole thing, and it's just. A it's one of those joke. things that like you step back from it in a documentary that's made in 10, 15 years time with like you know just you know various clips are, are chopped in and like just bald facts there and it's like oh yeah but like you know you're living at the moment so it's you sort of yeah. you sort of like again the day to day news cycle just cranks on and, and there's an, en- an element of oh why are you banging on about this you know what about her you know loads of people to come in to defend their clubs honour and what about them and mm. you know and it just goes round in circles to the point where you know, you just end up fighting over it. Yeah. But it's it's happened, you know, and, and once you like this was always the thing. Like once once you have a team at the top of the Premier League that is being funded in the way that it is, um and they've been the dominant team of a decade, mm. um well I mean that sort of like that lays out that lays out your, your standards for, for ownership really. And, and Newcastle can come in and, and rightly point to that and say and classic language what about you well I have a problem with us but what about them mm. and there you go you just you just you just you sleepwalk along but like where does it all end like I mean this is the thing we, we always have this debate like you always assume that in some way like you, you know is there a point where everyone just says well I've had enough of this like you have something like the Super League storm right which ironically again a lot of these super clubs eventually like you know came together and, and bowed to the fan pressure um, and you know pundits were up in arms over it and everyone was horrified you know you know the threat of you know the, the integrity of football being challenged or the Premier League being challenged or you know maybe the games wouldn't be on you know they wouldn't be sort of they would be taken off in a different direction you know we wouldn't have the traditional ladder that we we crave um, but like with this I mean, I mean no one's going to get sick of watching football like no. you know like you know what I mean like what's the like you know, people just collectively just turn off and say well, we've had enough of this doesn't matter even in a way anyway because the Premier League is such a global monster that even if you know it survived through COVID it survived through everything people thought transfer fees might be affected by COVID and they've gone up and that is the ultimate exercise in yeah it, does, it just exists in a completely different sort of you know stratosphere to every other strand of football now yeah yeah it's all very um, tricky and I suspect lots of people in the UK would say, yeah, 30 billion, done. They can have Newcastle. You did the right thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Although, like, you mean, the, the Tories aspect. get wiped out the next election, but, like, it doesn't... Not over Newcastle. No. No, no. But that doesn't... Doesn't matter. You know, and again, like, what do we do? Like, in three, four years' time, what if, what if Man City and Newcastle are playing the best football? Going at it every week. How do we feel about that game? Well, how, uh, you, you've just taken the last question on, on all of this out of my mouth, and I, I do suffer from this sense of you're talking about this all the time. Stop talking about it. Yeah, that's what you get. I'm annoying myself. No, like a self-imposed almost sense of stop talking about this. But like, it's just all so outrageous on so many fronts. How has it affected how you feel about watching Premier League football? Yeah, but like, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to ask because that's probably been my feeling towards the Premier League for a while and I, again though like, but then I'm I'm a hypocrite like we all are to a point like you know I watch it and I enjoy it like in the last decade or sort of five six years Man City have always been my favourite team to watch you know I love watching Kevin De Bruyne play like more above any player I think and it's brilliant but to me like I don't have any I don't have a Premier League club that I sort of support and I don't care who wins or loses yeah. To the, to the point where it's just like well this is what it is um, I don't personally understand um, how you know how people could be too invested 
in it to the you know from the from the point of view of like feeling that like their voice matters as like as you know, as spectators from afar, like you know, what I mean, it, it is what it is. It's it's a monster, the Premier League, more than it ever has been in our lifetime. Yeah. Like on a on another level, and like the point is, you know, it's like the global TV rights, you know, worth more, you know, and even the match going fans can kick up a fuss to a point, but it doesn't matter because it's it's all around the world. It's yeah. it's being watched and it will survive. So, yeah, like I mean, I'm I'm just sort of indifferent to a lot of it enjoy the football but but know that if anyone sort of came to me and said well you're being a complete hypocrite I could probably go yeah you've probably got a point mm. to be honest like I don't know how you feel you know with it like it's still it's like still like we watch someone like Evan Ferguson come along to make a very Irish point but like then you see like an Irish player succeeding at the the biggest club you know the biggest league in the world is thrilling what happens if like Newcastle suddenly signed two or three of these Irish starlets then what do, we, what do we say about that then yeah. you know I've always wrestled with this like I'm actually sick of uh, like football in this country being downtrodden and, and sometimes with the Newcastle fans I have a little bit of as much as they come across horrendous in a lot of their defences what if all of a sudden like you know Qatar for some reason decided to like pump a load of money into the Irish academies we are talking about earlier and to like fund them well we suddenly think well finally our sport's getting oh You'd have a tail on your head outside. <laughs> but you know, like it is the classic thing. And I, I, some of the Newcastle fans find really annoying, and some of the well, stuff is completely over the top. But 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 like you have to sort of sit back and go, what would we, what would we do? Like you know, it's as if there was a takeover that, that brought loads of money in here. But then, like I mean, I was in Qatar for a month, and you just know you see the obscene nature mm-hmm. of the whole society and how it functions. Yeah, well, I, in, for that reason, I didn't. Um mentioned the Newcastle fans actually has been some kind of reprehensible mob because I do have a degree of sympathy for how their very genuine affiliation and love for their club has been leveraged and it's put them in an impossible situation and it's gone the way I pretty much thought it would go initial unease on the part of I'm sure Manny and then pretty quickly sick of other people pointing the finger at them and so siege mentality has ensued and, and they'll live there very comfortably I would think for the foreseeable so I think it's just a standard human reaction so I don't think they're any worse or better than well, any other I th- fan base I would think that they're almost a perfect target for it though if you look at it in a particular way like if you're in Newcastle in the North East the neglected North East you probably have a little bit of that siege mentality that's there yeah. they don't care for us down in London if, they've got, if the Saudis have gone to like a London club you know, a sort of a if they if they decide to take over Chelsea from Abramovich, right? I, I you know I don't know what the mm. what the vibe would be, but there's like with a lot of the Newcastle coverage, there is this tone, and you see it of people like they've gone from Championship to Champions League, and when Newcastle were in the Championship, it was one of these great, you know, stories of like a tragedy and in, in, in a in a I mean, and this is it, like that's in the sporting language of tragedy, and then like Saudi stuff is actual tragedy, yeah. you know, what, what they preside over. But what I'm saying is that there's that sense of the, like you know families, generations, you know, weeping, you know, watching games together. You know, this is their pilgrimage, and their club has been you know treated badly over the years, and they're forgotten. And it's it's part of the world where there isn't a huge amount people would say going on apart from the football club. So in some ways, it's like the perfect place. Yeah. To, to start a project like that because you, you you have people who are naturally um, affronted in some ways anyway. Yeah. And I think to be fair you always have to differentiate the global fan base with uh, people over there for whom it's a sense of place as well where it's akin to their GEA club 
and it's part of yes, and Newcastle and Man City both have that in common. Do you? To a point, you know, I mean, I don't know. Again, in a in a decade's time, sorry to cut across here, like in a decade's time, is there going to be like stacks of football tourists going to watch these clubs in the way that they do at Old Trafford and Anfield? That Irish under seventeen generation, uh, Old Trafford holds no lure. It's like, oh yeah, my dad supports Leeds. you think? Leeds. Yeah, it's like you and the player going, my dad supports Leeds. Like the, you know, the, the, the Man City crowds are still, you can get, and, and actually I've, I've heard two different views on this. Yeah. Some people would say, well actually, you know, if that's the size of our fan base, then so be it. Maybe that's a well, good thing. Give the kids a chance to get some pocket money and be on their first trips with their mates in their 20s. They just haven't matured yet. Do you reckon? Oh yeah. Mm, okay. No doubt. In terms of how I feel about it, contradictory, I suppose. Because on, on the one hand, I can't believe how good the football is across the board. All 20 teams mm. can't believe how technically brilliant all the footballers are and how innovative the tactics are and all the best players are here. Like in Haaland, it's one of the first times that like the best player in the world has come to the Premier League at his peak or even just before his peak. Generally, throughout our footballing lives and anybody uh, before that as well, uh, those players went to Spain. They went to Barcelona or they went to Real Madrid. But now even the Premier League has become such a behemoth that it's taken all of those players and it has all the best managers in the world. And week in, week out, I do find myself, because I you just I love good football. And I used to, when I was, you know, mid-2000s, uh, really watching a lot of La Liga and watching a lot of Premier League side by side. I would really despair at how crap the fullbacks were in the Premier League. Just boot the ball away, you know? Mm. Whereas in La Liga, everything was so clever and so technical and so brilliant. Uh, whereas fast forward now, I honestly, I sit there and watch every Premier League match pretty much and match of the day every week. And I think this is just a joy to watch. Like I'm so appreciative of how mm. good it is. And yet at the very same time, a bit like you, I don't care who finishes where. Yeah, it just leaves me completely cold. I just, it is such an irrelevance to me. It's like something I sit there and dispassionately admire as opposed to 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't know why it felt really important that Mourinho had won and this was a big mm. thing. Now maybe that's age. Yeah, very you possible. Know, like so maybe this was this was coming down the tracks anyway because how could you find it as important in your 30s and beyond? Um but I I I do more think it is just the increasing uh city Newcastle-esque atmosphere which pervades that just makes it all so pointless. Yeah. There's there's nothing organic about it anymore. Yeah. And, and the contradiction comes from the point that if we were still in the days of the Edwards family and Jack Walker and Ken Bates, I wouldn't be get the f- I wouldn't be watching the football I'm watching. Mm. Most likely. So one has been cashed in for the other. So I'm watching it and I and I genuinely think, God, it's it's I can't believe how good it is. And at the same time, Maybe it never mattered, but it really doesn't matter now. Yeah, I suppose when you look at the origins, like like why football became popular initially, like and again you, you're going to and sweeping generalizations, but you know like the, the working man's game built around communities. Like that's where it started from. Like a lot of the a lot of the names of the teams where they came from were built around like the old industries of the time. You know the full stadium, like Sheffield Wednesday, because you know Wednesday was the day off for people in Sheffield. You know like this was, you know the steel, people working in the steel industry. Like you know, this was where football came out of, and, and its popularity. And even like in this country, people were sort of captivated by the the bright lights and the full stadiums and the atmosphere. And now, like it's, it's like a lot of those things actually don't matter. 
And, yeah. I, and to me, they really did. Yeah. Even though I'm not from Sheffield. But I liked that sense they don't of identity. Matter. They don't matter. There's no identity. And like that identity has been lost. And like you can still, I haven't been to England that much actually in the last couple of years, but I, you know, would have gone a lot probably prior to COVID. And, you know, you go to places like Preston and, yeah. and places where like, you know, the, the electricity in the town comes from the football team at the weekend. And, like that still exists at a point. You still see some of the scenes in the playoffs. You're like Luton playing Coventry. Um, in the championship playoffs final on Saturday is an incredible story. And the mad thing about it is that one of them gets the ticket to the Premier League where suddenly, you know, they're, they're making more more money than like every club in Syria in a in a in a heartbeat, you know. But yet, actually, the clubs, all the clubs in the football league, are running up massive debts because they're chasing this dream. And it's just like it's very divorced from where the game started, yeah. you know, and and where it derived its meaning initially. And like that's why I don't know, like what, how do the next generation feel about this? Like, you know, do you, we I encounter a lot of people in Qatar. This we've talked this at the time, like you were supporting multiple countries. You'd even chat to people now who would say that their kids wouldn't necessarily support clubs as much as they might individual players. You know, it's sort of a, yeah. it's a different type of engagement with football than what, what they might have had, what we might have had when we were younger. Um, and it's all about the star power and the glamour. And it's about Haaland as opposed to City. And I'm not, and immune, I'm not immune to that star power. No. But it, it might as well just be Team A versus Team B. Yeah, it is like there is something about there's an NBA esque element to it, you know. Yeah, except like the, the next stage is they start moving from one part of the country to the other. Yeah, I, I, I but I, I, madly, English football still has a, a little bit of a traditional streak that will fight that. It will, it will run a Saudi deal through the back door, mm. and it will run this through the back door. But if, if someone like talks about abolishing the FA Cup you know, or something like that. Or or they'll keep this ban on live TV in England at 3pm on Saturdays, yeah. which is like some last, like, you know, uh, but, you know, we're doing this for the sake of clubs, you know, for match-going fans, whatever. There's these li- little steps to it, so we can't go that far. But we can go far enough to be taken over by uh, by oil money. Mm. But we just, you know, don't, 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 <laughs> okay, don't have this. Yeah. Don't have this. And that's it. And like, I mean, you know, more people are going to watch football here in recent years. People wonder, people just a little bit more, you know, just they're, they're not, people are still as connected with English football as they ever mm. will be, but a little bit more emotional detachment, maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. Do you know what I mean? And I think like football, a lot of people for football is that sense of place. Yes. You know, and, and that's probably lost a bit. Uh, the football show and off the ball brought to you by Sky all the football you love in one place across Sky Sports BT Sport and Premier Sports Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent what a pleasure it's been a pleasure <laughs> okay back after these football on off the ball with Sky watch Premier League Women's Super League EFL Scottish Premiership and much more live on Sky Sports